and bodily transformations. We understand uh, human bodies, we think we understand human bodies because we all have one. Uh, we've watched it change, um, our perceptions of it continue to change across, across our, our lifespan. Um, we also have an appreciation of other people's bodies. Um, human fascination for that is, is enormous. I remember many years ago I lived in London and I used to change uh, underground trains at, um, uh, at Earl's Court and just, you know, just the diversity of humanity that passed through that train station um, of, of the morning was, it was enormous. Um, this fascination with the body um, goes in many, many different directions. By way of introduction, anthropometry is the measurement of, of bodies, and this title to this book, The Individual and the Population, is, is that we want to understand um, individual bodies and understand morphology and drive meaning from morphology, and that can be many different kinds of meanings. Uh, this is a medical anthropology uh, seminar, so uh, the particular meaning that we would be thinking about is, is health. But in order to, work to get healthful meaning about um, individuals, we need to know something about groups of people and populations. And that's where um, it all becomes um, a lot more complex. Start off with a couple of caveats. Um, anthropometry, unlike genetics, this is uh, just a, a piece of artwork from the uh, Human Genome Diversity uh, uh, Project. Uh, showing many, many, many different faces. Um, unlike genetics, anthropometry is skin deep. Before there was genetics, this was one of the things that was used to understand human variation. Uh, this picture uh, from uh, Anthony Gormley's exhibition now three years ago um, in London uh, shows, I suppose, that anthropometry tends to reduce humans to boxes. That is, we know what a human shape is like but if you just measure height, and you measure weight, and you measure breadth or something, you're left with a bunch of boxes. And it's an extremely crude kind of way of going about things. Bodily transformations. The different intersections that we have. We have philosophy, medicine, art, anthropology, statistics, public health, all interested in body and bodily transformations. Normative bodies um, with Aristotle, public health bodies with Bowditch, uh, evolutionary bodies with Darwin, um, uh, humoral bodies with, with Galen, um, statistical bodies with, with Galton. I'm just going down this, this, this list and looking at some of these key words. And um, all of them have um, a different way of thinking about it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give a review of the way that anthropometry is used in historical context how it's been used to think about natural selection adaptability and how it has been transformed in the last 50 years um, in the quest um, for health in um, humanistic frameworks. So in historical context, um, <clears throat> see art, philosophy and aesthetics all combining with ideas of Aristotelian norms. These two pictures, three pictures, this is Leonardo's assumption. Um, uh, where do you find, uh, find um, idealized bodies? Well, um, you find certain kinds of idealized bodies in the Renaissance. But if you go from the Renaissance, from Albrecht Dürer and beyond, 
you start to see these kind of idealizations emerge in manuals of, 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 of drawing, drawing anatomy that gives numbers to the ideal ratios of, of everything that could conceivably be measured. And uh, the idea of uh, uh, normative bodies is something that, uh, that, I shall, that I shall come back to because it's been formalized in uh, public health nutrition in the idea of anthropometric percentiles, which I will uh, come back to. Where does it start to emerge as a, 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 an issue of health? Well, Anthropometria was the first uh, volume that linked bodily measurement to uh, Galenic frameworks, the Galenic framework of humors, and philosophical frameworks, the Aristotelian framework of well-tempered physical proportions. That is, there is some kind of bodily... Okay, what's the laugh? I'm sorry? The concept of race. Oh, we'll come down to that. The next two pictures we'll get on to, to concept, concepts of race. Um, because these are, this is another theme um, that, that, again, persists to the, persists to the present day. Um, the idea of um, well-tempered physical proportions, of course, when Linnaeus was, was, was classifying all of nature on the basis of morphology, on the basis of seeing things, on the basis of measuring things, uh, the idea of race was applied to humans. Now you have, at the time, the idea of races was applied to um, uh, uh, non-human species to represent different kinds of, of diversity. So, for example, you could talk about um, these days, three races of chimpanzees, for example, uh, <clears throat> as having some kind of, uh, some kind of uh, uh, biological basis. But the Linnaean classification, um, when he came to humans, um, he subdivided humans into four categories, which was, uh, interestingly, persistent to the present day. Americanus, okay, Homo uh, Americanus was reddish, stubborn, and easily angered. Um, Asiaticus was yellowish, greedy, and easily distracted. Africanus was black, relaxed, and negligent. And Europeanus was white, gentle, and inventive. Well, of course, we can see how uh, this concept of race uh, uh, was, was, was reified to uh, justify the, uh, uh, the European Enlightenment status quo. Uh, but if we look at... Um, racial typologies and so-called ethnic classifications. Uh, in this case, for the purpose of characterizing anthropometric differences among populations, you know, uh, we can take the Linnaean classification, you know, Homo Americanus still persists in the idea of a Latin American population, even though those Latin American populations have enormous, uh, enormous biological diversity within, the, within themselves. Um, Homo Asiaticus, as persisted, we have an Asiatic, 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 Asian, you know, and so on. Um, that the idea of, uh, of of this as a, you know, as a biological discriminator persists uh, persists to the to the present day. Homo Africanus, African, 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 African ancestry, all the way to the present day. <coughs> Europeanus, of course, we still have Europeanus. Uh, European, European, European ancestry, European ancestry, um, Evelyn and Tanner, Martyrell, 1988, Evelyn and Tanner in 1990, still persists for these classifications. Now, the problem, of course, is that 
Um, with the new genetics, we know that these, these, these classifications actually fall down. Um, that in fact, there's more genetic diversity within um, an African population than there is um, among the rest, of, uh, the, the rest of humanity. So these are actually you know, quite false uh, senses of, 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 of how the world divides. So we sit with a, a lot of historical baggage. And what I want to carry on doing is, is demonstrating how this historical baggage <coughs> uh, makes <coughs> implicit um, the way that we think about body size, body proportions, and um, uh, change and transformation in, 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 uh, in, in human bodies. Um, Montbéliard and Buffon. Um, Montbéliard was, uh, was, a, was a French, uh, um, uh, French uh, aristocrat, and he had nothing better to do than measure his son's height, uh, which, uh, uh, which he did fastidiously. And when he, 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 he plotted it all out, he, he produced what is the iconic human growth curve, which everybody has of some variant of. So in so doing, he, he put together the idea that actually becoming a body is, follows, is, a, is a patterned process. It's a process that um, one can expect certain um, stages to be, to be reached at particular ages. For example, by the age of 11, most of childhood growth is done. And then after that, you'd expect to see a, a pubertal growth spurt where in the present day, you know, adolescent males develop a very good relationship with the fridge while they empty it um, to, to fuel their uh, pubertal growth. Um, and the patterning of growth um, was taken one step further by uh, Ketelet, um, in Belgium, who returned to the idea of um, the beauty of the mean, the, the Aristotelian mean, um, elaborating a classical theme on layering this on top of uh, Montbéliard's um, patterning of the human growth curve. So he then started to talk in terms of norms and deviations, laws of growth and proportionality, building on, on, on Dürer, developing something that he called the Ketelet Index, which is weight over height squared. And this was used as a measure of build and population excellence. You'll your Ketelet index should be within certain norms to be within, the, uh, within the, the, the bounds to be beautiful. Now, where do we see this particular um, idea, this particular notion re-emerging in the 20th century, which is actually with the use of body mass index as a measure of fatness. In 1981, body mass index um, was a renaming, a rebranding of the Ketelet Index, which was viewed to be useful in, in, in measuring body fatness, a hugely imperfect measure. Um, but when we think of the way in which the body mass index is used to stigmatise, it's used in the media to identify those people who are overweight, um, obese, and so on, we can see that in a sense, not only is this Ketelet index, this body mass index, being used as a, 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 a measure for identifying, um, identifying healthful bounds, we also see it being used um, 
in Ketelet's way, only Ketelet is never invoked in the present day. So, <clears throat> the next stage was the body beautiful takes us to another place, the body eugenic. And Francis Galton, who um, was um, a, 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 one of the earliest eugenicists, viewed you know, the body beautiful and the body, um, the ideal norm of the body, in a slightly different way. We tend to have forgotten about um, Galton's ways of identifying what ideal is, because they ultimately ended up in the gas chambers. People who were not ideal ended up in the gas chambers. Use of anthropometry in particular, in particular ways. The one thing that he developed in trying to understand the bounds of, of, of human variation and you know, what are the bounds of, of, of beauty, what are the bounds of, of, of a healthy, hygienic uh, body, uh, is a device that has been reappropriated in public health. And the device is, is the anthropometric percentiles, in which um, the idea that there is variation around this average pattern um, has been formalized, formalized into, into these anthropometric percentiles. And that hyphen in there is Galton's own hyphen. I wanted to go back to the 1885 paper many years ago, and, and somehow they kept giving me a paper in 1985, rather than 1885. Uh, what Dalton did was actually measure a lot of people. Uh, one of the big uh, London exhibitions, people paid their money to be measured, and afterwards he put the whole up together and statisticalized the whole, uh, the whole notion of growth. So then we have an idea of, of bodies that are, um, <coughs> that are the, the bodily norms are then enshrined um, in statistical patterns. And in the latest part of the 20th century, these statistical patterns have become ever, ever fancier. There's a whole uh, body of, of statisticians who work with growth curves, and they work with what is the best way to characterize, uh, characterize um, the pattern of human growth. In, in terms of classifying um, um, uh, growth norms for health, if you fall outside some extreme, then your probability of getting sick is a lot, big, uh, is a lot bigger than if, you're, if you're, than if you're within particular bounds. And so, uh, so where these lines fall at the bottom and the top is actually quite an important thing if you don't want to, want to uh, misqualify uh, people. Uh, how do we get to the idea of public health? Well, first of all, Anthropometry and, anth anth uh, and anthropology were once closely tied together. There is a thing called biological anthropology in the 19th century. It was all one anthropology. <coughs> and <coughs> anthropology in, in, in the, in the mid-19th century was interested in human origins, in migration, physical characteristics, art and history, early civilization. It had everything to do with humanity. I can think we are still very interested in this, but the way that we look at physical characteristics and the physical measurements now are far more, are far more sophisticated. Uh, where anthropologists would have used physical measurements to say Asians are small, Europeans are tall, 
and we can use these and their skull sizes, their skull width, their skull length, their skull circumference, and all these things were taken as being meaningful measures of their, their kind of racial affinity. This was blown apart by anthropologist Franz Boas in the United States uh, when he published in 1912 on the changes in bodily form of descendants of immigrants. This is one table from, uh, from, his, from his book that shows people from Bohemia, that part of Czechoslovakia, the Czech Republic these days. Uh, those who were um, uh, born in the United States tend to be taller than those who were born overseas. Those who were younger and had lived much of their life as children in the United States were taller than those who were more than 25, 26 years of age. So living in the US led to increased body size. This was quite a subversive paper because this was actually undermining um, the dominant ideas about body size and morphology as having um, uh, as defining uh, racial characteristics. Now, from Boas, you're able to then reconstruct or use um, body size um, as a measure of, of biological plasticity. And where it became important um, initially was in the idea of how humans come to be what they are. So natural selection, adaptation, adaptability. You've all heard of Charles Darwin, who wrote on the origin of species, um, the descent of man and the common ancestry of humans and apes, evolution through natural selection and adaptation. Hopefully you would have heard of, of Wallace as well, who came up with the same idea at exactly the same time. Um, and there doesn't seem to be a Wallace here at the moment. Um, in fact, we never know, there might be a Wallace year in 2023. Uh, the idea of body size is important when one thinks about the ways in which human evolution is, 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 is studied. In the absence of genetics, and dealing genetics, you had morphology, you had some physiology, you had behavior, you can always observe behavior. Um, with morphology, you can measure everything about a person that you want. In terms of, in terms of, of development, child growth takes place within a very short fraction of evolutionary time. This is the adaptive suite. I first of all lifted this from Pianka's uh, evolutionary ecology. I redrew it and therefore claimed it as my own. Uh, and um, believe that it holds an awful lot of information in a very short space. It talks about processes and states in uh, thinking, about, uh, thinking about adaptation. So a lot can happen if you've got a million years. Less can happen if you've got um, uh, a century. Less if you've only got a year. Even less if you've got a week. And even less if you've got an hour. There are processes that underpin human bodies how they develop, and how they're transformed. And these processes, we measure the state 
in anthropometry, if you will, of the individual, and we develop our understanding of the, the biological well-being of communities uh, from those individuals. But it's how those individuals behave in human ecology that determines how one sees them. Underpinning the ecology, you have the physiology. So child growth is a developmental, it's a developmental process. The one thing that humans have is a huge amount of plasticity. Boas showed that initially. It's been demonstrated over and over and over again repeatedly that uh, if circumstances change, environmental circumstances change, then child growth patterns also change. When you give children plenty of food, they grow well, and if you don't give them plenty of food, they don't grow well. If children get sick, they stop growing. They may stop growing because of the infection, they may stop growing because they're not hungry, because they're anorexic. <clears throat> In evolutionary terms, the human growth curve that have been characterized by Buffon, remember this guy's an aristocrat, and what he characterized was the growth curve of a privileged child his own son. This was not too far away from the, the modern growth curve, where we assume that people finish growing at around the age of 18 years. In agricultural societies in the present day, in India, um, in China, in Latin America, the growth curves are very different. They're much slower, they take much longer. Part of this plasticity is that even if you can't make it up in those earlier years, some places you can keep on growing to the age of 22, 23, 24, 25, and you can make good some of that shortfall. But also, when we have this data on prehistoric hunter-gatherers, there's been lots of archaeology that's dug up long bones, and these long bones can be measured, and you can get a proxy for body size from those long bones. Yes, there are problems with, with those measures. Actually, prehistoric hunter-gatherers were not that different in terms of in terms of body size than than the modern humans. The big disaster was the adoption of agriculture. And that the modern growth curve is something that only happened in um, industrial societies. It's something uh, the modern growth curve was something that could still be found among um, the well-off about uh, the people uh, among the people of, of high socioeconomic status. Um, but among the poor, because the origins of agriculture also increased in equality, uh, um, the growth trajectories changed enormously. Now, what's fascinating about this is that human growth, unlike the growth of many mammalian species, is extremely plastic. Many species can't do this. How does one use this kind of evolutionary knowledge, this kind of plasticity, in... Um, in understanding, um, in understanding human health. <coughs> well, this chart gives us a clue in that it shows the timescale of some human physiological, immunological, and developmental um, adaptive processes. Uh, and the kinds of things that, you know, we as a naked animal, for example, would have to respond to, for example, if we walked out of this room today, with no clothes on, it's cold. You have to respond to cold immediately. You have no choice. Um, so there's a physiological response makes us shiver, um, and you know we can raise our metabolic rate if we're exposed to cold for a long time, and that can proceed proceed for a long time. 
heat, we have to respond to altitude, you go up to high altitude, you get physiological responses. Now, these things at the bottom, nutritional, infectious disease, chronic nutritional, uh, acute nutritional problems have immediate physiological responses. And the anthropometry can pick these up in, in a matter of a month, of, uh, of a few months. That is because if you starve somebody, they may lose weight, but it takes time to lose weight. And it's time, and so it, that's not an immediate or very sensitive measure. Um, infectious disease will have similar kinds of, similar kinds of impacts. You, anthropometry won't give you an immediate or sensitive measure. Chronic nutritional problems is a developmental issue. It takes years for this to develop. The short stature among most South Asians is is a developmental response to, to chronic nutritional problem. There are other measures in which you would say, well, they adapt successfully, but there are other things that also happen. Many of these people die. <coughs> it's not a sensitive measure. Um, but why does it persist as a measure? Um, in health and humanism, its role is in identifying that into, you know, individuals at risk and populations at risk. It's cheap and easy to do. That's the, the bottom line for all of this. You can take a tape measure into a remote place and you can measure somebody's height. You can take some, some, some scales somewhere equally well. In functional assessment, there are really two kinds of, um, two kinds of literature. Um, the first is um, body size and political arithmetic. And we can go back to Malthus in the way that he thought about population in you know, political arithmetic was um, the statistics that surround government and most of those statistics are economic. But it's reducing humans to, to economic units of one sort or another. Whether it's economic units that can work or economic units that can, uh, that can go to war. And this issue of body size, political arithmetic, has, has gone round and round and round. Why did they measure the heights of conscripts going back to the 18th century? Because somebody who's too short wouldn't be very good as a military cannon fodder, for example. Uh, in 1904, when Britain was losing its empire and uh, um, was uh, losing badly in South Africa, not at cricket, but actually in controlling land. Uh, there was a, a, a British Academy um, uh, 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 meeting that um, examined um, uh, the physique of, 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 the, of the British male and concluded that the quality of, uh, of, 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 the, of the working man was so dire that something needs to be done about it. In one stroke, you've got the combination of um, the economic units that were needed to be able to maintain empire and the need for improving the health and physique of those people through public health measures. The usual story about this is that <coughs> 1904, you've got the first London County Council surveys that measured all children, wanted to make them grow better, and so there were nutritional supplements, <coughs> initially, initially milk. But in fact, this stemmed out of, out of uh, uh, concern for, for loss of empire. 
<coughs> Slaves were measured. The rise of public health, when measures of body size were used to, to assess the, uh, the, the productivity of slaves, uh, became something that, that could also be thought about in public health terms. And sporadically, there were few individuals who were doing this. The very earliest of which was Villemay in, in Paris in, 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 the, in, the 18, in, the, in the 1820s. And associated with this, the idea of, of social welfare. The main thrust of the use of anthropometry in, in social welfare has been nutrition, 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 which is part of the answer, but it's not the complete answer. And a starting point, the anchor point is, as I've said, the changes in bodily form of the sense of immigrants. There's a big leap between then and post-World War II uh, when anthropometry was still being used as racial classifier in, 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 in many parts of the world, uh, to it being, its plasticity being, being recognized, and the idea of, of measuring um, as, a, as a way of, of, as a proxy for the nutritional status of a community, Derek Jellick in, in the 1960s. So, and in the principles of nutritional assessment, where most of the methods for nutritional assessment, you can measure diet, but you can't measure it very accurately. You can measure biochemistry, but you need to put somebody into a clinical setting. Um, <coughs> you, can, uh, you, can, you, can, you, can, you can measure body composition, but you need very complex equipment. Whereas, if you just want to know whether a child in a refugee camp is severely undernourished, all you need is a tape measure and a tape measure you can carry in your back pocket. Uh, so the idea of being able to take complex ideas and reduce those complex ideas to a small number of measures that carry a lot of meaning has been a, has been a, major, a, major, in, uh, a major industry. Um, and more recently, physical status, the use and interpretation of anthropometry, it persists. And the present day, we become BMI obsessed because... Uh, because of the, 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 the emergence of, of obesity. But to give a little example of the changing use of all of these things, because all of this has been in the abstract so far, and <coughs> I'm going to focus on somewhere that I feel I know to some degree, <coughs> and that is, that is South Coast of Guinea, Papua New Guinea. From the 1870s onwards, Anthropometry was something that was measured as part of a range of other kinds of measures to be able to characterize populations. Now, of course, in the 19th century, New Guinea is, is, a, is a terrific um, laboratory for looking at physical diversity because people speak 500 different languages. You have some incredibly short populations, some incredibly tall populations. And this went into understanding, trying to understand human diversity. Now the first construct that was used in terms of thinking about human diversity was putting humans in exactly the same bag as other animal species. That is the, the Wallace line, which cuts across um, uh, Java and the um, island of Borneo, um, separating uh, those parts of Asia from uh, uh, what is often called, or was certainly called then, Melanesia. 
and that we see a distinct break in terms of animal species across across this 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 line. And there was a great concern with with demonstrating that humans, like all other mammalian species, um, in fact follow the same law, follow the same principle. That there is this deep piece of water here that stopped uh, uh, stopped any kind of um, easy easy migration. So the question of the time was. You know, we need to separate the people in islands, Southeast Asia, from the people uh, from the people of Melanesia. And focusing on that um, resulted in some very, very convoluted arguments. Very convoluted indeed. Uh, in the 1890s, the Torres Strait Islands expedition, expedition. There was an exhibition as well, but the expedition, uh, which uh, was uh, uh, organised by A. C. Haddon um, in Cambridge. <laughs> attempted to, 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 to sort some of this out by looking at the physical, linguistic, and ethnographic diversity. In fact, this was one of the things that led to huge splits in anthropology, and one of the, one of the things that, that was bubbling underneath the surface of uh, the split from physical anthropology from social anthropology. So Haddon Seligman. Seligman collected a lot of data in South Coast New Guinea, which I subsequently used when I went back to the Haddon archive and reinterpreted and used in a very different way to think about, uh, think about uh, developmental plasticity. So concern was really about humans' place in, in nature. Can you, can you tell us where that um, diagram is from? Yes, the diagram is from an uh, article by Stephen Oppenheimer. You know him? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, and it's in a book that I edited with uh, someone called Ryutro Otska, so O-H-T-S-U-K-A, uh, 2007. Is yeah. that the Eden in the East one? I'm sorry? Is that Eden in the East one? I saw one. Great. Yeah. Okay, then things start to change in the 1890s onwards. Um, Surveys of health in South Coast New Guinea were primarily had developed an economic focus because this was a, a place of, uh, a, a, of development and a place where, 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 uh, where Britain and Germany were and, and, uh, and the, the Dutch were, were, were developing colonies. Uh, but the health of indigenous population were laid mostly with, with religious missions. But data that was collected was in terms of um, you know, the, 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 the economic unit. Now this came very much out of the kinds of concerns about the, the, the physique of the average British person in the UK. I mean, they were British, of course, and the French were concerned, and the Dutch were concerned, they were all concerned, uh, because they, 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 they were all, uh, uh, they were all uh, empires in decline. In the 1920s, last, rather than anthropometry, the idea that the Melanesian population was in decline, and that the numbers were, were dropping dramatically, um, as they had been in many of the, the, the Pacific Islands, became a major focus. And the idea of, of, uh, of anthropometry was really one to demonstrate just you know, how poor the morale was of people living in these, living in these, new, in these new colonies. Now, this wasn't a humanistic endeavor at this time, because if the local population is crashing, you really don't have much potential for developing 
uh, uh, developing the colony uh, economically. But echoing what happened um, post-World War II in Europe, the United States, and so on, Anthropometry was used for the first time as a measure of child health and nutritional status, acknowledging the developmental plasticity that takes place in different, in, in different populations. And New Guinea's nutrition survey expedition explicitly wanted to look at diet, what they call dietary ecosystems, where people had palm sago as a staple, where people had taro as a staple, where people had yams as a staple, where people had plantains as a staple. And, and reified the idea of, 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 of dietary ecosystems, that the staple itself was a, a central, was, a, was a, an organizing principle for understanding um, the, the local physiques of different populations, but in terms of acknowledging the plasticity in, in body science and physique to, uh, to, think about, uh, to, to think about health. And everything that happened in New Guinea after that really... Um, the Human Adaptability Program of the 1960s, Public Health Nutrition Programs of the 1970s, uh, were very closely wed. The International Biological Program, for example, uh, set up a, a headquarters, uh, New Guinea headquarters in Goroka in the 1970s. That became the, uh, the, the um, Institute of Medical Research. So, you know, evolution and anthropology and public health were seen as... as, as, as uh, as disciplines that need not be separated. They're actually informing each other. And they were informing each other in the field. I have to say that most of the people who were doing this were European expats. They were, you know, Australian, British, um, American, German, and so on, who were out there for, because there was a, a very interesting, uh, a, 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 some very interesting things going on, including Stephen Oppenheimer. I've seen him in a safari suit. Uh, there's a picture of him at the Institute of Medical Research. I believe he's taking it off. Sorry? I believe he's taking it off. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Um, descriptions of, uh, of, of body size um, and, uh, and physique in, in South Coast New Guinea, where I work, were statements like this by uh, Brynell, who, who was a physician. The natives were a very good physique, very friendly and helpful. Many of the boys had been away and signed as indentured labors for a year, and many of them had been recruited more than once. So there, the idea, you know, if the physique of the local people is, is good, then you can send them away to work on plantations. And much of the movement of populations in New Guinea at the time was in relation to, to, uh, was in relation to plantation work. People had moved, you know, hundreds of miles uh, to, uh, to, 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 work on, to work on European plantations. Um, in line with concerns about uh, the depopulation of, uh, of, of uh, Melanesia decline in the numbers of the po Melanesian population. Uh, this is Koravaki, a place I actually worked. I chose Koravaki as my field site because the 1947 expedition had gone there. So I was able to actually go back. This is, this is, this is my original field site, if you will. The general appearance of the people at Koravaki is the reverse of well-being. The majority appear poorly nourished and underweight. Many, including adults, children, infants, had severe degree of scabies infestation in, in Patigo, and many of the children had neglected sores. They didn't also know that the population had crashed by 75%. There was only a quarter of the population there at the time, and had been there in, 19, in, in 1913. 
at this time, there were big political differences in, 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 uh, in, in uh, Ireland and New Guinea. Um, first of all, um, post-1947 was a time to be thinking towards, towards independence, towards the separation of the colony um, of, of New Guinea, and towards um, leaving um, something that could be, uh, could be uh, administered in, in, uh, in, in reasonable fashion. Um, so this was a, a major concern in the 1950s, but um, okay. um, the anthropometry uh, shows quite clearly that the decline in health and decline of population between the 1900s and 1947 resulted in uh, a good two centimetres decline in average stature. Now, when we have the data, we have ethnographic reports of how people were. These are useful in informing what a two, two centimetre decline in stature might mean in other places, because there's lots of historical data there also. By 1980, when there were public health programmes in place, stature was increasing. The last, you know, when we get to the mid-1990s, stature is increasing again. People are getting bigger. People are getting taller. And this is the way in which one can think about um, improvements in, uh, in the biological quality of life. And as I've said um, in a previous lecture, that it's not all nutrition, that in fact what affects growth is diet, it's nutrition, but it's also disease, it can be pollution, contaminants, toxicants, it can be deprivation, it can be psychosocial stress. But all of these things are embedded within a political economy, um, within the way that socioeconomic status is constructed, uh, and so on. So it may be nutrition, but it's a lot more complex than nutrition, because one wants to reverse some of these changes, just improving nutrition may not be the only thing to do. These increases in stature in the Parari um, came about, that's woman carrying a, a, a young child that's got severe diarrhea came to, a, to a clinic after many years ago. Uh, this is a health post. Primary health care is one of the things that has resulted in increased stature, the fact that simple provision of, uh, of health resources, um, breaking up the diarrhea cycle by giving oral rehydration results in, in, in in increased health, but also increased uh, growth of children as this, as this measure. And this is a more recent uh, picture, uh, picture from, this, uh, from this area. So to pursue the idea of uh, anthropometry, health, and, and economics, uh, we have to assume that health is a, a universal human right. World Health Organization does, and that's why these kinds of measures are, are rolled out in every, in every country of the planet. But where does the Aristotelian norm sit? Where is ideal body size? In India, there was a very healthy debate about small but healthy body size. It started in the 1980s, and it's rocked backwards and forwards across the years. Um, but the idea was that uh, you can be a small adult and be perfectly, perfectly functional. You can do everything you need to do. In fact, you could argue in the New Guinea context, being my size is not very useful um, because 
the couple of times I've gone out with the guys foraging, they've never taken me out again. I'm too big, I'm too clumsy, I make a noise, <clears throat> I fall over, everything is wrong about me, you know. In, um, <clears throat> among the what kind of one day, um, I went out with the guys one morning, the next day I woke up and, you know, the night before I was saying, yeah, 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 we're all going to go. And the next day, they all had gone and left me asleep. Because they really couldn't, uh, couldn't, couldn't uh, uh, face telling me that I was useless. And that sort of thing. So, stealth, body size is just one kind of approximation of a function. Um, where do the norms sit? In India, it was argued that smaller body size can be more appropriate. And smaller body size, you can, at a stroke, obliterate the problem of undernutrition in India. You can completely reconfigure uh, the need for India for, for, for large amounts of food, and they can very, you know, they can start to generate surpluses rather than uh, rather than be facing a problem of undernutrition. Contra that, at the same time in Mexico, they were arguing that actually larger body size is more appropriate because. You know, people should be allowed to, to, to achieve their, their, their full potential, full physical potential, full economic potential, full um, intellectual potential, all of those things. So that debate runs and runs. At what stage also is another debate, at what stage does body size actually contribute to increased economic output? The big literature on sugarcane cutters uh, in Central America. If you give somebody a sub food supplement at lunch, are they going to be able to produce significantly more um, uh, more sugarcane across the course of the day? And the answer is to some extent yes. Is it economically useful to feed people? Is it economically useful to take people of a larger body size? Those, you know. Aristotelian norms are totally up for grabs, um, as are um, ideas of, of uh, you know, a, and the ideas about um, those norms for different groups of people as the genetics takes apart those racial classifications. And of course, inequality. Um, uh, in the 1980s, um, Jim Tanner, who was a, a, a growth and development guru, a very eminent one, had argued um, that the difference in the stature between the poorest and the richest within a country was a very good marker of, uh, of social welfare within a nation and argued that this would be a useful thing because it would pull apart many of these sort of um, economic issues because money can be messy because people don't necessarily spend money on things that are going to improve their welfare. Um, and he cited the example of the Swedes who had a very little, very small difference in stature between the bottom 10% in terms of income and the top 10% in terms of income. And, of course, he had to compare this to the United States, where the difference was actually quite substantial and continues to be very substantial. And this was never adopted um, as, a, as an international uh, currency of, uh, of, uh, of economic uh, welfare. But across the planet, where people are poorer, they are uh, generally shorter. 
the small but healthy argument um, has been uh, argued against because small body size beyond certain bounds also is associated with, with, with high death rates. Okay, to the final part, and from a history of anthropometry to economic history, this kind of understanding about nutritional status, developmental plasticity, the flexibility in human growth curves, and how societies can transform their body size has been used to try and understand uh, past populations. Slavery, the rise of public health, um, the importance of social welfare in society could all be dissected by the large body of data that has emerged on uh, body size measures going back uh, now something like three centuries in many places. So to some examples of uh, where this kind of data exists. Britain has got very good conscription data going back to the 1750s. So the military measures people. You should, should stress this is also this is a this is a military recruitment um, conscripting people for the war in the Americas. The conscripting data in Britain is stratified along social class lines because you have people who are military officers and you have people who are you know, pulled off the streets and, 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 uh, and, uh, and, and dragged into the army. The same is true for North America. You also have the example of, of American slaves who were measured, many of them were measured. And the, 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 the documentation of these measurements is found in, you know, in South Carolina, in Philadelphia, in you know all the ports of call where the slaves were brought into 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 the, into the United States. Rick Steckel at Ohio State University has made a a lifetime's work of this, and his initial work involved looking at American slaves and how poorly slaves to the US grew, children, but also how well they grew in adolescence once they were considered to be economic units and not just children. That when they were reached the age of 10 and 11, they were put on full adult rations, and then they were suddenly growing at an incredible rate. This chart shows adult height as a percentage of modern standards. So 100% reflects the kind of normative values from, from these percentile charts. And as a marker, anything below 95 starts to represent some kind of significant deviation that has, has health consequences. So these, and this is height age of 10 years as a percentage of modern standards. So if you're low down here and high up there, it means that by the time you're an adult, you have done a lot of growing in adolescence. So the US slaves were short 90% of the, the modern standards at the age of 10. By the time of adults, they reached 98%. They literally jumped, made a lot of, a lot of catch-up growth. Um, 
But that's not a unique thing. That may be one of the most extreme examples, but there are other examples. There are um, um, laborers in the UK, Russian factory workers, German peasants. Um, this is all historical data, by the way. This all goes back to the 19th century. The Italian poor, by way of a marker, um, in the 19th century were short at the age of 10 and continued to be short at the age of they, as they became adults. But the values down here, 80-90%, are kinds of values you'd expect in um, a slum in Nairobi, for example. These are short people. At the other extent, you have non-laboring classes in the UK, very you know, tall as, as younger children, towards older children. Stuttgart aristocrats, tallish at both times. Middle classes, much um, much shorter as children, do a good deal of, of catching up again when they become um, productive economic units. Always and everywhere, class and height are positively correlated. People of higher social class, people of higher economic status are almost universally taller than people of, of lower um, economic status. And this is data from, um, uh, from Germany um, in the 19th century, 18th century. So. Similarly, this growth plasticity can be demonstrated in, in history. When we get to the early 19th century, where there have been economic catastrophes, climatic uh, catastrophes that have resulted in, in famine, um, where there have been, where there has been plague. Who um, watched Lark Royster Candleford last night? No, of course not. Um, Lark Royster Candleford, it's a television program. But anyway, it's set in about the 1830s, and there was, it was a measles epidemic last night. So. That shows the level of entertainment I choose. Um, uh, but everywhere there's a decline in in, in stature because of because of uh, because of famine. What one sees among the rich, they're very well buffered. So if you have the resources, you can you can stay you can stay you can stay tall. Other ways in which this historical data is informing the present day. Uh, another statement by John Comros, the mysterious trend in American heights in the 20th century that um, shows that the uh, United States uh, population in the early 20th century was, was the tallest, um, one of the tallest in, you know, on the planet. And while they continued to increase in stature across the 20th century, uh, they were overtaken by the Dutch, overtaken by the Danes, overtaken by the Norwegians, overtaken by the Germans, uh, almost overtaken by the British, uh, and so on. Human populations are very plastic, and the American population has responded uh, to um, changing resources by not growing upwards, but also growing sideways. 
and this is body mass index as used by, by, uh, by uh, John Comlos, um, to, uh, to, think about, to think about obesity using historical data, using body mass index values, and showing that you know, South Carolina, in the late 19th century, body, average body mass index was just around 20. Um, by the time we get to the 1930s, it's already above 22. What he argued was actually, you know, that the first time that one saw, saw this sort of increase in body size in terms of in terms of, of weight and so on um, came with the, the the earliest introduction of refrigeration in the United States. It started to change the food supply. There are technologies that will that will that will change things. And he's argued that going back to the very first picture where he showed so those waves, he's argued that there were two waves of. Of, of, of increasing body mass index, one in the 1930s, actually three, another one in the 1960s, another one in the 1980s. And in fact, looking at the anthropometry with large numbers with lots of populations, he's been able to identify three waves of increased body mass index. Now, the important thing is, pinning those waves of increased body mass index, I mean, the Danes have found two waves post-World War II. We're looking for them in the British population, rather rageless. <laughs> um, um, <clears throat> that if one can pin these waves of increased body size historically, then one should be able to map onto those things particular changes in the way that people do things, the way that people live lives, and hopefully, ultimately, the, 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 the political economy that leads to those, those changes in body mass index. So, in summary, human bodies can change. Size does matter. If you're a forager, being of a large body size means you have, have a, a more, to, more to forage from. But the ideals for body size merge the aesthetic with the medical, with the anthropological, with the statistical. And sometimes it's difficult to tease apart what the agenda is in any particular context. So in thinking about the emergence of obesity historically, it can be very clear um, about how we're using these measures. If we're using body mass index, for example, we know it's a device. We know it's just a mechanism, it's just a device for thinking through, um, uh, through, a, particular, through a particular problem. It's an instrument. It isn't something to be, to be verified. I'll stop. Thank you.